Hello, I'm Fifi Peters. I want to welcome you to the Journey to One Billion podcast series. We're speaking to MasterCard experts and business leaders across the Middle East and Africa and around the world who are working together to build a more inclusive and sustainable digital economy that works for everyone, everywhere. MasterCard has a commitment to financially include 1 billion people into the digital economy by 2025. This is the journey to 1 billion. Who better to kick off our series than MasterCard's executive chairman, Ajay Banga? Ajay took up this role after an 11-year tenure as CEO of MasterCard, during which time he led the company to triple its revenues and quadruple its profits, while also setting the company on a journey to financially include 1 billion people into the digital economy by 2025. Ajay and the team at MasterCard call this doing well by doing good. When purpose and profit are placed side by side, they are partners who empower each other that it is possible to do well by doing good. And it recognizes that when the world thrives, we all thrive. Ajay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Fifi, and it's fabulous to be with you. Uh, lovely. Let us talk about the journey to one billion and uh, take us back to the beginning and help us understand why this goal to financially include a billion people into the digital economy is so inextricably linked to MasterCard's own journey as a company. Well, thank you for asking that. And I think this kind of goes back to my early days of joining here as the CEO back in, uh, in 2009 and 10. And one of the things we realized very quickly was that uh, a lot of the, the business we were in, the marketplace we were in, was still dominated by the use of cash. And I'm still discussing consumer payments at store or online. This is not even the relatively inefficient B2B payment chain. We can discuss that as well when we talk about why SMEs need to be specially focused on. But just consumers, there was a lot of cash in the economy. And if you went to the reason, Fifi, for that cash to be there, it turned out that a large part of it was caused by two factors. One, of course, cultural or relative levels of financial sophistication or infrastructure, those things in one bucket. And different countries were at different stages of that. But then there was also the issue of people lacking the fact that they were not involved in the formal financial system. They didn't have an identity. Therefore, they couldn't open a bank account or even a light bank account of some form. And governments themselves, when they were distributing their own salaries, payrolls, benefits, or distributions to people at the lower end of the pyramid, would end up doing a large part of that in different forms of cash. In fact, 30% of the cash in an economy was generated by the government itself on the average, distributing such things to their citizenry. So we kind of stepped back and said, okay, we're in the business of fighting cash. If we're in the business of fighting cash to help make the economy more digitally connected, remember this is in 2010 and 2011, before digital became the buzzword that COVID has made it even more so, 
uh, we said we've got to do something about this cash. And that led us to the government focus and to the focus on the financially excluded. So that's one part of the, of the development. The other part of it was that the World Bank was putting out studies and the IMF and talking about the fact that, uh, you know, two plus billion of people at that time lacked a digital identity or any identity and lacked a connection to, to the formal financial system, which meant that the things that you and I take for granted, saving for a rainy day, getting access to insurance, being able to put money in and out of a bank, building a credit history so we can get money at a reasonable price, and not having to pay cash at a hotel or for a car rental when you show up, things like that, not having to wait in a queue to pay your electricity bill, things like that weren't available to a lot of these people. So when you triangulate those two things together, we kind of came to the conclusion that we could use our network and our technology because we're a B2B firm and connect to all these banks and merchants and governments and see if we can make a difference to these people. And that was the level of sophistication that went into it. And then came 2013 and 14, and there was a World Bank IMF meeting. The heads of the two were there and Queen Maxima of the Netherlands, who's the UN special envoy on inclusion. And I was on stage with them. And she asked me, Queen Maxima asked me, so tell me, what are you willing to do? And I said, I think I'll reach 500 million people by 2020. And when I got off the stage, I had a ton of employees looking at me and saying, you are stark raving mad. Because we had, we had no idea how we would get there. But this is one of those cases where you know you want to do it. You put out a difficult, audacious vision and we'll find a way, and we did by 2020. We reached the 500 million people. My successor as CEO has doubled it to a billion, including enabling 50 million micro SMEs to accept payments and be electronically and digitally enabled. But also within all that, find a way to reach 25 million women entrepreneurs. So I, uh, it's a journey that we went on. We realized that there's a big gap here. We realize it starts with an identity, starts with helping people, starts with connecting with governments because that's the largest creator of money and cash in one place. And then use our network to help that and we could discuss examples of that type. But really it was the energy of our employees who took our day-to-day -day business, took our day-to-day -day technology, took our day-to-day -day network connection and kind of made it all come to the party for this. And I think that that's the secret sauce, actually. And in steering the ship in this direction, uh, particularly in the early years, how did you convince your stakeholders to come on board with you along the journey? So it's interesting. Employees are a large part of the stakeholders. They actually jumped at it because I think, you know, everybody understands that you want to be able to do well and do good at the same time. And this was a chance for them to actually put meat around the bones of that idea. That I want to do well. I'm in a company that is successful, but I can also make a difference. And I think that's very important. Our company very early, Fifi, we realized that we're in the business of growing our business only if people keep adding to their consumption and and they get more and more into the digital world and the formal world. So frankly, in our own self-interest is the idea of thriving communities. Because a thriving middle class drives consumption and a thriving consumption scenario drives our business. So 
when you think that through, very quickly you can conclude that this is good for you. So we use that argument with our stakeholders in the form of shareholders, investors, and our board. And, and we found that everybody got this message. And we said to them, we probably won't make money on these efforts for many years to come. In fact, my words were, my successor's successor will probably benefit from the work we're doing today. And so, of course, now that my success is in place, I keep reminding you, hey, you're the first one. Let's go do something about it. But that's just, that's just to have a little fun at his expense. It is an enormous journey, a challenging one, I'm sure. And uh, therefore, I suppose a little fun is acceptable. <laughs> but just moving on, Ajay, as you speak, uh, many of our listeners will be reflecting on the enormity of the challenge of being excluded from the uh, formal economy and what the experience must be like uh, for the people around the world affected. You have previously described financial inclusion as really being about finding ways to give people the opportunity to succeed so they feel the dignity of their own effort. Can you then elaborate on what the benefits of financial inclusion are in practice for people, for business and society at large? So the word dignity is a very good starting point, Fifi. If you are excluded and you live in a cash economy, and as I said, you cannot do what you and I take for granted, fortunately for us, but unfortunately for those who don't, you know, the paying the bill without standing in a queue or access to credit at a reasonable price or access to insurance. If you're a, if you're a fisherwoman in Bangladesh who essentially gets the fish and then goes around, has to ask to deliver it, and you hurt your leg, that's the end of your earning for that period till you get back on your feet again. That cannot be the right answer for somebody who's working very hard all the rest of the time. She cannot lose her dignity from this. And so Michael Mibak, my successor, actually got us going in South Africa with helping the South African Social Security Agency find a way to distribute its benefits to its citizenry electronically rather through an agent network, which lent itself to all forms of leakage and abuse, whereas electronically eliminated a bunch of middlemen and I think improved the efficiency and the efficacy of the system. And Michael was the guy who actually got that first transaction going. And with him, I went to meet a lady in Soweto called Hilda who taught me that not being reliant on cash from an agent, but having a card from us with her fingerprints and biometrics that only she could use had given her back her dignity and had given her back an identity and had given her back a reason to feel that she was a person. And I, it never left me. So I would say to you, dignity is a great starting point for the importance of this whole thing, of why it makes a difference. But then there's tangible other things. There's resiliency. You will find that if people are able to get access to lending, get access to insurance, my example of that fisherwoman, the resiliency that it gives her through the bad patch that she's going through because she got hurt is amazing. And for her family, that is an amazing opportunity. And then there is the aspect of taking advantage of opportunities. So if you're a, if you're a farmer, and you can get crop insurance, then what happens is you're willing to invest. Because if you do not have crop insurance and you have a bad monsoon one year, and you're a farmer in a village in India, 
uh, where's your resiliency or your ability to take advantage next time of being able to invest ahead of the curve? But if you have insurance, you can. Something in the Western world we have access to as a farmer, but we don't in the developing world. Or take the cost of intervening in the financial market. If you can borrow at a reasonable price, I've used that sentence a couple of times already, that's because there's lots of people who will lend to you at prices that are not acceptable for you. But when you don't have a choice, that's what you do. And so all of this is connected and intertwined. This tangible fact of resiliency, opportunities, and reduced cost is connected and intertwined to the base principle of dignity. And I think those are critical reasons for us to care about the topic of inclusion. And you know, financial inclusion is one aspect of it. You started by asking me about digital inclusion. I really like that because I think technology is a great enabler, but if you're not careful, technology can widen and deepen a digital divide. And so it's incumbent upon us to do this the right way and do it carefully and build it the right way. So we can actually use this technology to widen reach and provide greater access and a level playing field. I'm glad to hear you're quite the global citizen, Ajay, and you have been to uh, my home township that is Soweto here in South Africa. But moving on, like any good journey, there are plenty of bumps along the way. There's also opportunities and discovery, of course, uh, in knowing the, the real joy of knowing that you're on the right track. It is an incredible achievement that you have managed to achieve so far in bringing 500 million people into the digital economy. And uh, just looking at the road ahead, uh, what would you say the main lessons have been so far from the journey? So Fifi, I didn't know your home was Soveto, but I loved going there. In fact, I took my family back. <laughs> So the kids and my wife, we've all been there now a couple of times and spent a fair amount of time there. I was lucky enough to go there with somebody who grew up there and therefore actually understood the township. I think you can't understand it till you go there with somebody of that type. And I cherish those couple of visits there. One of the advantages of our job is you get to see things that otherwise you would never have had to do. And I think I'm very privileged and fortunate to have had that opportunity. So your question of learnings. I think the first most important one was the one we discussed, that actually governments are one of the biggest generators of this cash and therefore have to be a critical part of the solution. You have to make these partnerships work. You really can't do it yourself. We're only a B2B you know, infrastructure and technology and data company. We don't actually reach consumers. Banks do, merchants do, governments do. Digital players do. And so I realized very early that we're going to have to build an ecosystem and that ecosystem is requiring all of us to put our shoulder to the wheel as compared to trying to somehow do it yourself. That's the first thing. And I think that includes NGOs and governments because there isn't enough money or whether in philanthropy or government to let this happen just by government and NGOs doing it. I think the private sector's uh, you know, capital, innovation, skills, technology, people, we need to come to the party to do this for the right reason, which is to help communities thrive. So that's the first big learning. The second big learning was that therefore building partnerships is key. And we've actually built a series of successful partnerships now in 
75 to 80 countries with thousands of these programs running with governments and banks and digital players to achieve all this. And in Egypt, for example, with the government of Egypt, Central Bank of Egypt, we created a digital payment ecosystem wallet on the phone, along with, by the way, the mobile network operators and all the banks of Egypt, which now benefits 14 million people in Egypt. Or in Saudi Arabia, this is again in your region, the Middle East Africa region, we went to the local domestic payment scheme, MADA, and got them to really be enabled for e-commerce. And we were the first one who enabled that. So I could keep going. I could give you many such examples. And they're all examples of partnership. So that's the first part. The second big learning is none of this works without an identity for the citizen. Because you cannot open a real account of any type on a phone with a fingerprint in the cloud. I don't, don't get confused by the form factor. That's just stuff that gets in the way. But the idea of giving you some place where your money can go and it can come out from requires you to be identifiable as Fifi. Uh, you know, with this photograph, that fingerprint, living here, that birth date. And I think, therefore, making sure that people have the dignity of an identity is an important part of building inclusion, whether in the physical world or tomorrow, a secure digital identity. You know, we've learned this and we've done a lot of work on this space uh, to help governments do this well. We don't do the identity, they do it, but we help them. The third learning has been that just because you get someone to have a payment system where money can come in and come out, doesn't mean you're including them. Real inclusion is to make a difference to their lives over a period of time. And you must have the patience for that to happen, which is they have to begin to use that. They have to build a history of use. You can use that to price them for credit in a more attractive way for them. You can use it to give them insurance. A lot of companies have joined us on this journey over the years. And I find that as you really expand for them, the vista of being a part of the formal financial system, that's when they really benefit, not just the opening of an account. We shouldn't just tick the box and say, hey, we reached 500 million people. It is actually that we made their lives simpler and we made their lives easier and we made their lives more beneficial through these efforts. That's the third thing. And connected to that is the fact that it's got to be an uh, economically possible system, self-sustaining. If you squeeze the air out of the balloon, there is no balloon. So if you try and make this something which is done as a philanthropy, as I said, there isn't enough money in the check-writing world to make this happen. We've got to find a way to get the private sector to the party, and they will come and do it if it becomes part of their business model. Government must provide the guide rails for that business model so that nobody gets abused or taken advantage of. Government can also, along with NGOs, provide and shine a light on the issue. They can also provide risk capital to get going. But eventually, for scale, for long-term sustainability, you're going to need the private sector with all its capabilities to come into this circumstance. And I think that's the other learning. And then the last part is interconnected. It's to do with women and SMEs. So the SME one is a very simple point, Phoebe. Around the world, SMEs are about 90% of businesses half of employment and half of GDP. In the Middle East Africa region, those numbers are actually higher in terms of employment and GDP contribution than they are in other regions. And SMEs and micro SMEs 
unfortunately, get access to a very small part of the total credit that they need to conduct their business. Less than 7 to 10% in the Middle East Africa region of the credit goes to these businesses that generate an overwhelming majority of the employment and a large percentage of the GDP. That's not a good place to be. To change that is not to criticize anybody, but to create the avenue for the roads to be created. And what you need is the chance for these SMEs to get underwritten in creative ways using alternative data sets and AI so you can take the risk out of the decision-making. So we, as example, in MasterCard, we launched something like this years ago with Unilever, with the help of Queen Maxima again, in Kenya. And we went to, to Unilever and said, you know, all these women, now you see where the women part comes, who open these small stores in front of their homes when their husbands and children are away and they buy produce from your distributor, you know how much you're selling them. You have it in your bills. They run out of the stock of your product by the third, fourth day of the week because they cannot afford to buy enough for seven days from you and all the other companies that come to sell to them because they're in a cash economy. But because you know how much they buy, if we digitize that and we underwrite using that trail of information, I should be able to figure out that Ajay or Fifi are actually worth a $1,000 loan because they're consistently buying this produce and then enable the repayment of the loan from the next purchase. We launched that with the Kenya Commercial Bank, with Unilever. Unilever's distributors got an increase in sale. The payback was excellent. People didn't default. The bank was happy. The government was happy. Most importantly, those women running those micro SMEs gained some more economic independence. And there's enough stories around the world to show that when a woman gets economically independent, her family benefits. So if you want to break through this cycle, you have to empower the women. And women are great at running these micro SMEs, from the fisherwoman to the salesperson who's running her own little shop to somebody running a grain shop somewhere. We need to empower them to be economically independent. And I think that's the story of microfinance around the world. And the question is, can you lend in a more intelligent way? And I think that's my learnings, that we can make a difference to the lives of women and therefore to families by helping these kinds of things happen, but do it in a way that's economically sustainable and do it in a way that includes the dignity of an identity and the basic entry into a formal financial system in partnership with governments, with NGOs, with banks, with merchants, with digital players. Ajay, you actually uh, touched on my next question, which was uh, why SMEs, uh, women-owned entrepreneurs, were so important and crucial uh, for MasterCard's uh, journey of inclusive growth and being able to achieve that inclusive growth strategy. Well, that's exactly the point. I think if 50% of the population is not part of the story, then I'm afraid we can only make so much progress. And, and I think changing communities for the better requires us to devote ourselves to those who have been unfairly left out over many years and many generations. And, and I think we have a chance to make our little difference to that story. We are only one part of the story. There's plenty of other companies doing excellent things. And I don't want to take away from any of that. I really believe that the key is the partnership. It's not any one company. And so we look ahead 
And I'd like to ask you what the next stop on the journey then is. And uh, if you can share with us some of the key areas of innovation in MasterCard's approach that you believe will accelerate financial inclusion in future. Yes, well, as I said, my successor, Michael, has in fact upped the ante for our company and our people by saying, 500 million is interesting. I'm going to try and get to a billion by 2025, including those 50 million micro SMEs, and through all this, impacting 25 million women entrepreneurs, which I love. I, I love this whole idea. I like the fact of the specificity of that targeting because it gives people something to aim for. So there are a couple of steps between here and there, right? This is not going to be easy. The learnings we talked about are the learnings, and we've got to keep building them. But one of the things that I've found is that partnering with innovative players is an excellent way to expand the horizon of everybody. So, you know, I think some years ago with the Gates Foundation, we created this Labs for Financial Inclusion in Africa. And one of the things we did there was to launch an interesting idea for how to get to farmers on the one hand, and another one for how to get to parents and children for education and school fees. The farmer's idea was to create an ecosystem where farmers could use digital technology to not only get access on a, even, a, even on an old-fashioned flip phone, forget about smartphones, but how to get access to information to crop better, you know, livestock, feed, seeds, that kind of stuff, but also how to sell their produce and buy fertilizer and the like without having to transact in cash and without having to deal with middlemen. Now, that idea is going to many countries around the world, including to parts of India and parts of other markets around the world, where initial trials are showing that farmers are benefiting enormously, even through COVID times, by what this technology is enabled. The same thing with Coupa, which is an aspect of paying for your fees. If governments are distributing aid for kids to go to school, if you can make sure it reaches the school directly and doesn't go via the parent, you can help eliminate leakage at through all the systems that come in the way. And by the way, you can also keep in track, therefore, of school attendance and teachers and, and the work that's going on. So it enables both sides to benefit from this and so on. I find these innovative ideas, these platforms using technology are amazing. We're working with a company called MCOPA in parts of Africa that is taking uh, the idea of solar-powered batteries and systems to the last point in a village where government-distributed electricity may not reach because of the cost of building the grid. But using a solar cell and a battery that you could activate through a QR code and a simple transaction, you could buy the electricity you need for the time you can afford to educate your child when they come home and it's darker, or to get drinking water for them processed, or to be able to cook. And I think these are the kind of things that to me are very exciting and very liberating. So I think our journey has to be one of continuing to engage with innovation on all fronts of this type. I think central bank digital currencies could be an interesting innovation to remove some of the cost of cross-border remittances. As you know, cross-border remittances in some countries are larger than every other form of capital inflow. But they have friction and they're expensive. Some of that friction can be removed by connecting into global systems using bank account to bank account rails. Some more might be removable over time with central bank digital currencies. And we are keen participants in that ecosystem. 
Another one is we're a part of the Edison Alliance of the World Economic Forum. And a number of companies together have come together to say, here are some principles of inclusion, financial inclusion, digital inclusion, education inclusion, health inclusion, using digital technology to enable it. And those principles are not dissimilar to the learnings you and I discussed. I think that could be a force multiplier if more companies sign on for it. And so between here and there, to go from where we are today to get to a billion, I think engaging with innovation, embracing it, embracing deeper partnerships with governments, embracing ideas for women and micro SMEs, and doing so by involving more partners through things like the Edison Alliance. These are all building blocks for the future. And I'm, I'm sure Michael will have another few as he goes along because he's very thoughtful about this topic. And so I'm very positive about where we are going. I do know this, Vivi, that business as usual is not going to work in solving this problem. And so we have to find other ways to approach this. And if you indulge me for a minute, I will tell you something that I believe is a guiding light for a lot of us in this company, which is the way we view challenges in the world you and I live in. And we view them on three sides of a triangle. One side of the triangle is the trade-off between one and many. We've actually spent the last period of time discussing that. You know, it's, the, it's financial exclusion or inclusion, health, education, it's the unfortunate part of being born on the wrong side of the tracks or your color, your gender, your sexual orientation, your identification. You know, these should not become disadvantages. Our job is to create a level playing field so your energy can help you win. That's one problem. The other side of the triangle is humanity versus nature. That's the conversation on climate and green, everything from what we are seeing today as the challenges in our climate including polluted air and water, but, you know, fires and flooding and unseasonal weather events. But even more so, the challenges for poorer economies to deal with this crisis. And all the issues of blue hydrogen and green hydrogen and batteries and where's the future and solar cells and wind power and kinetic energy and all that conversation. And then the third side of the triangle, which keeps the two sides up, is the trade-off between long-term and short-term. And too many solutions are incented for short-term while the problems are long-term. And therefore, we're applying shorter-term solutions to long-term problems, which leads to Band-Aid on an open wound. And I think we have to recast this conversation using digital technology as the enabler to say, let's think out a little and let's really work on one versus many and the climate to make the place better for our children. And so you and I have been discussing one versus many. And our company doesn't have a big carbon footprint. So I don't know that I can make a big direct impact on humanity versus nature, although we're doing all the same things everybody else is doing with net zero commitments and among the first companies to get recognized in our industry for that and so on. That's not the point. The point is we do have a network. Remember, like the network we use for inclusion on the financial side. So we've now gone out and made a commitment that we will help to replant 100 million trees. We call it the Priceless Planet Coalition between governments and merchants and the like and companies by educating a consumer about their carbon footprint and incenting them to do things differently. So in the carbon fighting world, rather than only discuss institutional remedies of carbon taxes and carbon markets, 
which are critical. We also want to bring the consumer, an educated consumer, to the party on this topic. And I think, therefore, most companies can find ways to make their business model apply to the three sides of the triangle. That is my firm belief. We'll all do it differently. But if we all do it together as partners, we can make a difference. I think I agree with you, uh, sir. But Ajay, thanks so much for joining the uh, podcast and sharing your very insightful views with us. Thank you very much, Fifi. It's a pleasure always to be with you. You're listening to The Journey to One Billion. Join me next time where we examine the power of the digital economy in the Middle East and Africa with Raghu Malhotra, MasterCard's co-president of international markets. Raghu believes financial inclusion is key to ensuring an equitable future for all. To listen to more, you can find episodes on www.miacontentexchange.com or download or subscribe to the podcast through your favorite platform. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, why not leave us a review? I'm Fifi Peters. Thank you for joining the journey to one billion.